KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we're still thinking about the Amazon workers on Staten Island and their historic victory, but now they must prepare to strike and to win support for their strike from the community power structure. Jane McAlevey will explain why and how she's the nation's strikes correspondent. Also, happiness in Denmark. Why are the Danes so much happier than the Americans? Joshua Holland has an explanation. But first, today's political update. For that, we turn to Alan Minsky. Of course, he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, the grassroots group that worked with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He's a frequent contributor to Common Dreams. He's also written for the LA Progressive, Truth Dig, and The Nation. And of course, he's the former KPFK program director and a longtime producer for this show. Hi, Alan. How you doing, John? The big political news now is about that key political primary in Ohio for the congressional seat representing Cleveland, where progressive Nina Turner is challenging incumbent Chantel Brown in a rematch of one of the closest recent elections. The primary is next Tuesday, May 3rd. Why is this election so important? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, first of all, Ohio, along with Indiana, are the first primaries of the central period of the primary season. So their primary is on May 3rd. There were primaries in Texas way back on March 1st, but even there it produced some runoffs. So the first real results in a set of contests that are taking place across the country in which progressives are challenging moderate Democratic incumbents or their open seats, which are then turning into contests between the progressive representing the progressive wing of the party and a moderate Democrat. These are taking place all over the country. So first of all, this is the first high profile contest. Okay. Nina Turner is also better known nationally than any of the progressive challengers that are running in other races. So this will really sort of set the tone for a whole spring and summer of primary contests across the country between moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats. Um, and it's a very clear demarcation in this case. While um, Chantel Brown, there's been many stories written in the past few days because she received the nomination of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Well, she also received the nomination, uh, rather the endorsement of the New Democratic Caucus because she's a member of both the right-wing Democratic Caucus and the left-wing Democratic Caucus. Nina Turner will not be a new Democrat if she wins. She will only be in the Progressive Caucus. So this is being called a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. Do you think that's an exaggeration? No, not at all. But I would go even further. I don't know that you can really um, achieve hyperbole on this race. But let me actually qualify that. Okay. The upside, if Nina Turner wins, from our point of view, is tremendous. The downside, it would, be a, it would be a devastating defeat for progressives. But let's face it, big money dominates American politics. Big money is the reigning heavyweight champion, really unrivaled over the last few decades in American politics. The progressive movement, the insurgent movement within the Democratic Party that was sparked by the Sanders campaign in 2016 challenges basically the rule of money in American politics. And... Um, uh, so 
the status quo result, and of course it's cynical, it's banal, it's depressing, but it won't be surprising. We've all absorbed it many times before as progressives, obviously very conspicuously with Bernie Sanders as successful as he was. But let's go through the implications of a Nina Turner victory. Okay, a Nina Turner victory, as I said, will really put the wind in the sails of progressive challengers across the country, many of whom are slightly favored and even more are viable and very competitive as races are only getting defined. You know, the American public is not that engaged with the primary season yet, but locally this will start to happen across the country. So you could really see sparked by the race in Ohio, that kind of transformation. Now, why? Why would that be the case? And this is what's sort of strange about this. Paradoxically, by the time you get to November, perhaps the greatest beneficiary of a victory by Nina Turner will be the Democratic Party, the establishment of which has been very aggressively lining up against Nina Turner in the race last year and in this race as well. Why is that? Currently, the Democratic Party, of course, the narrative is they are expected to lose the midterms. Many prognosticators are saying in a landslide, much as in 1994 and in 2010. And you look at why they're saying that. One key constituency is very conspicuously um, just demoralized and pulling back from the Democratic Party, and that's young voters. Now, young voters, of course, two things about them. They were the absolute foundation and the mass base of the Bernie Sanders campaigns. Bernie Sanders was by an order of magnitude the most popular presidential candidate among young Americans. But it carried over to the general election. Young people came out and voted, and they voted overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party. If the Democratic Party loses their youth base and they have an unmotivated progressive base, they will lose the midterms. Okay? If Nina Turner wins on Tuesday, this is what's so crazy. Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, they should be out there with their cheerleader pom-poms out there going, go Nina, go Nina, because it is the best chance to create the bond that the Democratic Party has to make with the progressive base. Nina Turner is phenomenally popular in Bernie land, if you like, and it's important that these people remain party. But John, it gets even bigger than that. Why is that? Because let's be honest, as much as I have problems with the neoliberal establishment Democrats, they are currently lining up as consistently supportive of the traditional operation of American democracy. That is not true of the Republican Party. Okay. So, you know, the ways in which demoralization can set in among Americans, and let's say Donald Trump isn't a Republican nominee because he motivates people. Let's say it's a DeSantis or some other Republican basically uh, want to be autocratic ghoul, right, is the nominee of the Republican Party. And you have this demoralization among young Americans, a pullback from the Democratic Party. And then the ways in which the Republican Party can just make Joe Biden an ineffective president over the next two years, as you can see, we American democracy, not just the Democratic Party, really should be out there. Everybody who believes in democracy should be out there uh, supporting Nina Turner right now. Nina Turner's campaign in Cleveland is the most important front in the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. But as you've said, it's not the only one. Uh, where else are there battles between progressives and the party establishment uh, right now? Well, okay, I'm just going to go 
look, there we're talking California, and there are great uh, progressive um, challengers uh, who are running in races across California. But that's on June seventh. I'm going to now just mention great progressive candidates, almost uniformly supported by the large uh, progressive organizations that you know supported Sanders or Warren in the uh, 2020 presidential cycle. Um, and there are, as Nina Turner in Ohio on um, Tuesday, May 3rd, then on May 17th, there are two great progressive candidates up in Oregon. Um, one is challenging the right-wing Democrat, Kurt Schrader, and her name is Jamie McLeod Skinner. She is neck and neck in the poll. She, by the way, <laughs> I don't want to talk about the cynical facts of the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. Schrader is the only Democrat in the entire cycle that Joe Biden has actually announced an endorsement for. Why? I have no idea. He was one of the 10 Democrats in the House who openly spoke out against Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and Jamie McLeod Skinner, though, you know, the, the state party up in Oregon, they're not endorsing the incumbent. They're largely endorsing McLeod Skinner. Then an open seat um, just south of there, Peter DeFazio is retired, great environmental champion. Doyle Canning is running there against an establishment Democrat. Then you run over to, to North Carolina, you have Erica Smith, a progressive um, state senator, a real like proud, you know, uh, FDR citing New Deal progressive, um, is got a good chance of getting the nomination winning in the fall as well in North Carolina four. There's Nita Alum in North Carolina six, that's March 17th, as well as in Pennsylvania, an unbelievably brilliant. I mean, the country's gonna fall in love with her and she is every bit right there with AOC on her politics. Summer Lee, she is a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives in Pennsylvania 12 in Pittsburgh, spectacular candidate, will instantly, again, among young Americans, be seen as one of the leaders in the country. Um, so that's the 17th. Going to the 24th, we got actually now an older candidate, brilliant uh, American African-American history professor from Morehouse College in Atlanta, who served for 20 years in the Georgia State Senate, a two-time Bernie Sanders surrogate, Senator Vincent Fork. Again, you got to see this guy to just instantly, you'll recognize that if this guy was on the floor of Congress, the type of gravitas he has um, on just the amount of history that he brings to, you'd love him, John, you're a historian. So Senator <laughs> Vincent Fork, uh, absolutely sterling candidate in, in Georgia okay. and, the 24th. and then in the 24th finally Jessica Cisneros has her runoff in Texas against Henry Cuellar and uh, Jasmine Crockett um, is very likely as a progressive to win in Dallas as you can see the progressive caucus is going to expand well now it's time for news of the class struggle in California uh, yesterday, there was a union protest by hundreds of UCLA researchers, instructors, and other academic workers. They blocked traffic in Westwood for hours on Wednesday. Two dozen union leaders were arrested, and across the state, at all 10 UC campuses, student workers demonstrated demanding increased pay and better treatment. These are academic workers represented by the UAW, the United Auto Workers and their allies, not to be confused with the part-time instructors represented by the AFT who won that amazingly great contract last year after an amazingly militant campaign. 
Uh, this UAW group is teaching assistants, academic researchers, and for the first time, student researchers. Their contract is up for negotiation right now. 48,000 academic workers. It's the largest current effort of academic organizing in the country. What happens here in California with the UC workers will set the pace for all subsequent academic uh, labor organizing. Their issues are uh, health care. The university wants to sharply increase the health contribution of employees. Uh, they want child care subsidies, and they argue their pay is inadequate to cover housing costs in high rent places like LA and San Francisco. Uh, what do you make of the wave of academic organizing na nationwide and especially here in California? Well, I, I think I'm correct in saying that the University of California, well, the California higher education system is the largest in the country, but of course it's three tier. Most states have you know, two tiers of community colleges and then universities. We have the state universities as well. And so obviously if this uh, sweeps across California, it's going to really uh, set a marker. I mean, you know, California is such a large state. That's why there's such a battle here, for instance, for single payer health care in the state of California, because if it happens here, you know, it's, it's such a huge impact nationally. So it really set a standard that um, uh, can uh, people won't miss it. I mean, you know, MIT is going through a, um, some kind of union organizing struggle right now. And it's nice. People talk about it. It's MIT. Everybody has heard of it. Right. But it's not that many people as it is in, uh, yeah. in California. And of course, the larger the shop is the more leverage you have. Um, so this could be a fantastic thing in California and fantastic because look, we're at a point in um, American history, obviously global history, but uh, staying inside the United States here, we've had the largest disruption in the way that we've lived um, in our lifetimes. I mean, you at least have to go back to World War II. And I remember that Bernie Sanders said, no, the civil war, you have to go back to the civil <laughs> war to have uh, where the daily habits of life were as disrupted as they've been over the last two years. And it's very clear that Americans are emerging out of the hibernation of the COVID period. And they're like, wait, our sort of relationships with our jobs, the way that we were living, the amount of labor we were doing, our compensation, that was not just, that was not fair. And uh, so, you know, obviously you have a thing like the great resignation where people are not returning to jobs that they were dissatisfied with, not an unprecedented wave in that regard. And then um, just an, a brilliant wave of union organizing across the country. And this is a very significant one here in California, a lot of people involved. And of course it also is significant because it goes to uh, a set of issues around higher education. Uh, you can't talk about this group of uh, people who are organizing and where they work without considering the imbalances in our economy with higher education, but the Starbucks workers, the Amazon workers, I mean, these are two definitional 20th century companies in the United States of America. And um, let's not talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's one other uh, big victory for uh, workers in the news this week, the um, grocery clerks, uh, United Food and Commercial Workers in, in Southern California have won a historic three-year uh, contract with Ralph's, uh, Albertson's, Vons, and Pavilions. They were preparing to strike, uh, but they've just ratified a new contract that gives them $4.25 an hour more over the next three years, quite a significant increase, plus more hours guaranteed for all part-time workers big issue in California, part-time workers, uh, worker-led store safety committees, of 
part of the fallout from the COVID uh, epide- uh, pandemic. Uh, healthcare improve, improvements and protection for their pension plans. Um, grocery store clerks have been uh, militant in the past in California, but they, but uh, their victory in some ways is a harder one to win than the UC workers who are state employees in a state that's run by Democrats. The grocery stores chains, Albertsons, one of the biggest corporations in the world, is not run by Democrats. Well, I remember years gone by when I was out on picket lines supporting the workers in these uh, very... Um companies, the grocery store companies. And, but, you know, first of all, of course, we, we just have to go back and remember and honor all the people who work in grocery stores. Um, you know, very brave, essential service, uh, whether it was the stores we're talking about, um, people at Trader Joe's, maybe a little nudge to them to unionize. Um, who's that guy who owns Whole Foods? What's his name? <laughs> That's his name again. <laughs> Are those yeah. guys unionized? Oh, no, they're not. Uh, uh, I think that guy's got a lot of money. Um, that's a Bezos, though. Let's not confuse him with the the twit who bought Twitter. And um, so, yeah, I mean, just more power and solidarity. Absolutely. And it's great to see the grocery store workers win again. It is a great and solid union here in Southern California. Now, your official position here is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And uh, PDA has been part of a big campaign now to um, rescue and renew American democracy. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the second Bill of Rights that you guys have been uh, talking about lately. Tell us, tell us what this is about. Well, what the way it came about was um, um, I'm friends with uh, Professor Harvey J.K. and a really fun operation called the Gravel Institute had him uh, do a video, uh, which they called the most radical speech ever given by a U.S. president. And it showed the footage of Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivering his second to last State of the Union address in 1944. And um, this was footage that actually was dug up by Michael Moore when he made the film Capitalism, A Love Story, uh, which ended on this. But um, even though people paid attention to a little bit when the Michael Moore movie came out, um, it really has been sort of become a relic of the past. Now it was in the 1960 Democratic Party platform, Martin Luther King embraced an economic bill of rights in the year before he died. A. Philip Randolph was always a champion of it. Of course, then there's this thing that happens in the 1970s and 80s. And things like this just fall out of, um, you know, the what's under consideration in mainstream American politics. This was in mainstream American politics. The public opinion approval um, before and after Roosevelt's speech for the tenets of his, his economic bill of rights was massive, huge support. Now, here's the kicker, of course. You look at all the countries in the world, a lot of focus on foreign policy right now, um, who have been America's strongest allies in the world um, since the beginning of the Cold War? And everybody knows which countries those are. It's Western Europe, Canada, places like Australia, South Korea, Japan, a few other countries, but just those core countries are absolutely the foundation of our alliance since the end of World War II. Those are the wealthiest countries in the world, along with the United States. Um, and if you take out the one statistic of aggregate wealth on um, every other social welfare indices, these countries now are doing better and much better than the United States. No mass incarceration, no homelessness, um, and not half the population living 
in poverty or close to poverty, nothing like that at all. No food deserts, uh, healthcare deserts, um, banking deserts like you have across the country, not just in inner cities, but in small towns across the country. None of that exists in any of those countries. All of those countries basically have put into practice the 21st century economic bill of rights that we outlined. So this is not some utopian fantasy that cannot be achieved. These things are in practice across the world. What are they? Single payer universal health care. Um, sometimes this is uh, written into the, the laws in these countries a little bit more rarely, but that's because they have really strong unions. And that is the first one. That is the idea that if you work a full-time job, any job that the market or the government, the public sector determines a person should be doing, you should be guaranteed a living wage for doing that job. One job you're taking care of. Um, we have in there, there should be paid vacation. Um, there should be um, all sorts of things to balance out the tremendous wealth inequality in the society and to provide a social safety net so that people can live their lives as they want to live their lives, not under constant economic duress and not living a life where they have to overwork over and over again. So the right to housing, uh, the right to universal health care, um, the right to a union. Um, and there are 10 of them. And why we wrote this in the end is because there are, there's legislation that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has introduced in Congress that matches up with all 10 of our entries on the Bill of Rights. But this isn't just about legislation. It's about a vision for what America really needs to be and what people want it to be. And you're not going to get anywhere in politics without that kind of overarching vision where you paint a portrait of a society where people have more liberty. Um, they have the capacity to live comfortable lives um, and to you know, fulfill their sense of uh, their lives in ways that currently Americans can't do, at least the majority of them, because they're under such economic distress. So that's the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. And we've written three uh, three-part article on common dreams. RBJK and myself. Alan Minsky's Economic Bill of Rights for All Americans, written up at commondreams.org, three-part series. Alan, of course, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America and an old friend of this show. Alan, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We're still thinking about the historic victory of Amazon workers at that Staten Island distribution center, but winning the vote to form a union is only the first step. To explain what comes next, we turn to Jane McAlevey. She's an organizer and the author, most recently, of the book A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. She's a senior policy fellow at the University of California's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, and she's also the nation's strikes correspondent. We reached her today in New York City. Jane McAlevey, welcome back. Great to be here, John. It's always nice to be with you on your show. Well, Amazon is the second biggest employer in the country. The New York Times told the story of how things started on Staten Island. It's a pretty good story. In the first dark days of the pandemic, 
an Amazon worker named Chris Smalls planned a small walkout over safety conditions at the retailer's only fulfillment center in New York City. The company quickly mobilized. Amazon formed a reaction team involving 10 departments, including its Global Intelligence Program, a security group staffed by many military veterans. There were more executives, including 11 vice presidents, who were alerted about the protest than there were workers who attended it. Amazon's chief counsel then described Chris Smalls as, quote, not smart or articulate, close quote, in an email sent to 1,000 people. He recommended making Chris Smalls the face of efforts to organize workers. The company then fired Chris Smalls, saying he'd violated quarantine rules by attending the walkout. Chris Smalls went on to win the first successful unionization effort at any Amazon warehouse in the United States. The New York Times called it one of the most significant labor victories in a generation. Now Amazon workers from another 50 distribution centers have contacted the union. My first question for you is, how did Chris Smalls and the Amazon Workers Union do it? What does the vote at Amazon Staten Island Warehouse tell us about how to organize a union and win an election? I guess I'm going to start by your the last question that you asked, and I might go back into some of the commentary, though I should say, Included in that first phone call with the lawyer that you were describing and setting up Incident Command Center was Jeff Bezos, by the way. It's a fact that Bezos himself was actually a party to that phone call. So right to the top of the damn ladder about one guy walking out over the fact that they had no COVID protocols in New York City, where at that point it was ground zero for COVID at a time when no one knew what this thing meant or what you were getting from it. So you've got to take ourselves back to March 2020 when, when he walked out. And by the way, most employers were shutting down in New York City. So Amazon was like, oh, hell no, we're just going to work them. Who cares? But it reached the level of Jeff Bezos in that initial call. So let's just start for a minute with who Chris Smalls was, because I think this is really interesting. And then it's, it's going to feed right into how did they pull off this win? So Chris Smalls had been there since it opened. He had five years at that Amazon facility, which is called JFK 8, 8,500 workers. It's a gigantic facility, just for starters. It feels like an auto plant, right? The, uh, the auto plants of yore, right? Something like really mm -hmm. big. So he had been there for five years, and in a high turnover facility, that's pretty interesting. Now, why was he there for five years? He'd been quickly elevated to management. So what does a manager do? A manager meets a lot of workers. A manager trains incoming workers. A manager has a different kind of access to workers than the average worker in the warehouse. And in listening to some of the workers in interviews subsequently, they will say he was one of the nicer managers, <laughs> right? So, so that's who Chris Smalls was. And when they fired him, it was so painfully obvious that they just did not want any attention about COVID. So what Chris decides to do is, because Chris has five years of connections in an otherwise high turnover facility, he knows a lot of the workers and they actually like him and they actually trust him. So Chris begins to reach out to some of the folks that he had been working with. There's a couple of immediate coworkers who knew about the protest, who walked out with him, one of whom is a very good friend of his at this point, Derek Palmer, but there were others. And by the way, the New York Times reported yesterday that Bryson, one of the other workers fired subsequently, uh, is being forcibly reinstated by the labor board. Then that's just yesterday's news. And as an organizer, 
Hmm, it's so wonderful <laughs> when the law actually works fairly and insists on putting an illegitimately fired worker back in with two and a half years of reinstated pay. Wow. So that just broke yesterday. And that's also nice news because when workers go in like that with an order from a judge, then this is relevant to what's going to be coming. They kind of walk in with extra, extra protection around them. And in a case that I wrote about in the Nation piece, which was Spithfield's Foods, kind of the largest parallel we have in contemporary times to a really big factory getting organized with a lot of labor violations and whatnot. It was actually the workers who were put back in under legal order, like this worker Bryson's going to be put back in, that actually were then very successful because the employer knew they had to be extra careful with them, right? So that's also happening just as of yesterday's court order. So there's a lot that's beginning to work in favor, I think, of the workers, not just the victory. So what did they do right? First, Smalls and his team of co-workers began to actually look around for how do you actually do this? Like they did serious homework. They began to read books and manuals. They flew themselves down to Bessemer to during that campaign to see what was happening down there. They've said in many podcasts that they had some concerns about what they saw, which is, I think, interesting. They then began to travel the country to just meet workers on strikes and else and do, who were doing not just Amazon workers. They just began to do worker self-education. Chris Smalls and his friends had not been union or organizers before. Had they even been union members before? No. And not only that, but he was a manager. And I should clarify, John, when I use the word organizer, and I think this is important, I do not mean full-time paid professional. An organizer is somebody who understands that their time and their energy and their work is about focusing on the workers who are not yet convinced that something like a union matters. So throughout this conversation, I just want to say up front, we should distinguish if you want, when we're talking about like something like a someone who does it full time like me versus I use the word organizer quite liberally because there are in fact, and Chris is an example of it, what I call natural organizers. In my books, I call them organic leaders. By definition, the use of the term organic leader that I have used in all of my books describes Chris Smalls and describes many of who went on to lead that victory. Chris would be the first to say this was not his victory, right? It took a lot of them doing it. And when I read all the interviews I've been reading, there's been some terrific just one-on-one -on -one interviews. And I've also been watching some of the shows that they're on. They did a big press conference last week where like 15 of them spoke. When I listened to their self-description of who they were, in their work areas. They had a small committee, but a mighty committee. They had workers who had been there for several years in key different departments inside the facility. And this is something very important. I should just put a little bracket around. It's not really come out in the news yet, and it's actually very important. They had a labor board order that gave all of them more protection than the average Amazon worker has right now, in part because of Bessemer and in part because of the Chris Smalls firing and him contesting it, there was a ruling that the National Labor Relations Board made after a lengthy investigation, too long, we would say, too long, but in time enough for the election, and this really comes into the victory, they had an order from the National Labor Relations Board that was in place in Staten Island and in Bessemer, the second election in Bessemer, that said, 
Workers have the right to speak up in break rooms. Workers have the right to speak up on their break time. There's actually a very significant part of the story that's not gotten much attention at all. And when the employer is being watched and when the workers have been read their rights to speak up at break time, it gave the workers, now we're moving through what they did right, it gave the workers who then knew what to do with that order, right? Just because you get an order doesn't mean the workers know what to do with it. It gave those workers who were super savvy at that point the ability to speak up in the captive audience meetings and know they weren't going to get fired. Remind us, what's a captive audience meeting? So captive audience meetings are mandatory meetings on paid time that you cannot refuse to go to when the employer literally picks you off the line and they say, downstairs now, there's a mandatory meeting that you must be at and you cannot refuse. Because if you refuse, it's considered gross negligence and you don't have a union yet and you don't have just cause provisions, what's called just cause provisions. So what happened, what what the team, Chris Smalls and many of the team around him, right, because Chris was not on the inside at this point. So this is the uh, this is the in-plant organizing committee working with Chris. They know that they've got some protection. They begin to speak up in those mandatory meetings. And that's hard to do now. We always encourage the workers to speak up. I can regale you with fun stories of things we have workers do in those meetings. Uh, there's always in the break rooms, there's always a microwave machine. We run in and give bags of popcorn to workers and say, <laughs> bring bags of popcorn and chomp like mad when you get in there, like make noise. You know, okay, there's a lot you can do with those meetings if the committee is strong. At Amazon, the committee was really strong and partly because they had that legal order with them. So they went into the meetings and when the employer would start to tell lies, they would put their hand up and just say, I'm sorry, that's a lie. And they were removed from the meetings, but they couldn't be fired. So workers began to resist internally. And that original story I wrote a year ago, analyzing and dissecting the defeat at Bessemer in the first round, one of the things that I wrote is you have to take the space. Like you have to do what we call own the factory floor. If you're going to win a hard fight like that, you have to stand up to management. Your coworkers have to see it. They have to see you taking risk. And the team at the Amazon Labor Union, the inside committee did a brilliant job of challenging the employer. So the big issue now is what comes next. The company has already filed a protest with the National Labor Relations Board claiming that the Amazon Workers Union interfered with the vote by threatening workers unless they voted for the union. Tell us about the company tactics and what's going to happen after that. By the way, they asked they asked for an extension on filing for their objections because they said they needed more time. I mean, but the objections are serious, and here's why. Most Americans don't understand that under U.S. labor law, which I always say is Byzantine and incredibly complex for a reason, I usually call it boss law or management law because that's really who it's written for. But under what we call U.S. labor law, step one is winning. But until you have what's called a certified union, certified by the National Labor Relations Board, you in fact actually cannot force the employer to the negotiating table. So what the objections do the employer and the union, both parties in the, in the National Labor Relations Board election, have up to seven days under U.S. labor law to file objections. The one that is most common 
and I've had filed against me, I don't know, three dozen times, um, <laughs> is the exact one that Amazon led with, which is that it was actually the union organizers, not the people who run surveillance systems internationally and arm small militias or large ones, as far as we know. They actually said it was the workers' union people who were intimidating people to vote. If you win a campaign, Every single employer I've ever helped workers defeat in a unionization election uh, at some point gets a charge like that. It's a delay strategy. So there is no certification right now. And most people are like, great, they're going to the negotiations table. And I'm like, yeah, they're not going to the negotiations table. Now they can get them there. And so the objection strategy is a delay strategy. As I outlined in my book, No Shortcuts, in the Smithfield Foods case, they delayed for 16 years Whoa. the workers getting the certification. Okay, that's a serious union busting campaign, but I think there's direct parallels to Amazon. What they do is, in short, they exhaust the internal National Relations Board elections internal objections process. Their lawyers are available, but then they cancel the day of the first hearing. It's so, someone, and now they're, everyone's going to have COVID. Let me just take a wager. Every Amazon lawyer is going to have COVID randomly. So whatever excuse they make up. I've always, you know, we're all dressed up and ready with 100 workers to go to an objections hearing. This is so typical. And the lawyers for the company at the last minute have the plane was delayed from the union busting firm in Tennessee. Whatever excuse. So once they get through, once the National Relations Board officers get pissed off enough, they'll start saying, great, we're going to have the hearing without you, right? I mean, this is a this is a well-rehearsed game. So they will play it out. Once they go through all levels of objections, and they'll just lose in all likelihood at every, at every level of appeal, that can go on for three to four years. Is there a way the workers can make this a shorter process, get to negotiations, and then push the company to sign a contract? In order to get around a delay strategy, these workers have what we call strategic workplace leverage. Not all workers have it today, but a company dependent on same-day delivery or two-day delivery, or let's even say three-day delivery, coming from the main fulfillment center to 8 million people or more in greater New York, that's just New York City, actually enjoys something that we call strategic workplace leverage. If they can build to a 90% or greater strike, they can actually demand the company drop the objections and get to negotiations. That is going to be the fastest route to get there. Now, that's going to take some real work. This is a strike not to enforce the contract. This is a strike to get to negotiations. That's right. So what we so in a, so in a campaign, a similar campaign with a thousand nurses in Philadelphia in 2016, a hospital versus Amazon. These are not exact parallels, but the strategy right. is: we had very serious union busters. They filed objections. I got a phone call at that point from the head of the union saying, "Get in here because we're in huge trouble." I got there and I said, "Look, we cannot play the legal game here. I mean, let the lawyers do their formal responses." We got to get workers ready to strike. We got to get the entire city of Philadelphia involved in this fight. We got to get ministers, faith leaders, religious leaders, everyone in the power structure who actually has power. And I want to emphasize that everyone in the power structure who actually has power. I mean, there's a lot of nice people out there and we love you all. But in a in a fight to the death with companies like this, with union busters, the workers, first of all, have to be strong and ready to strike. They also have to have the entire power structure with them. And if you can do those two things, they can do what we did, which our demand was drop the objections, like literally withdraw 
your objections. And our side's lawyers thought we were flat nuts. They'd never seen any company with a union buster withdraw from the legal process. We put so much pressure on the employer. The nurses themselves did this work, and I need to underscore this. This was not, quote unquote, paid professional staff doing it. In the methods that I teach, there's the workers getting themselves strong first and strike ready. We call it building strike ready unions. Then once they're strike ready, because that's the most important thing that has to happen, the, the community and power structure campaign has to come second. So the workers have to build strike ready first. Then they tap into and begin to do one-on-one -on -one grassroots, in this case, nurse to nurse, in this case, Amazon worker to Amazon worker, which they've already done to win the election. One-on-one -on -one conversations with each other where they actually chart all their own connections to the power structure. Who's your minister? Who's your imam? Who's your rabbi? Who's the head of the African Solidarity League on Staten Island? Who's the whatever the immigrant base is? You literally have workers in grassroots conversations, meaning bottom-up, then begin to chart their connections. Then they themselves, not staff, must go out because they've got what we call the strong ties to their own community. They then go out and begin soliciting letters of support. Why do I encourage workers to get letters of support from people in the power structure? Because you really don't know that they're doing it. Oh, if they say, oh, I'm going to make a phone call. Nah. You have to say, that's great. We're so happy you're going to call the CEO, but I actually need a letter that's written to me so my coworkers can see that you're standing with us. And that actually, I'm just going to say, is a super important part of the method. The demand that was given in Philadelphia by the power structure, ministers, faith leaders, electeds, was a demand that they withdraw and drop their objections. That strategy worked brilliantly in the end. The workers eventually got to the table. The employer, despite the $1.1 million the company spent fighting them, the workers and their connections to the power structure got the employer to actually drop the legal objections. We got a negotiated agreement then to get to, because they had wasted four months. We forced them to sign an agreement saying they'd give us negotiation sessions every week, twice a week, to make up for lost time for like the first month. And then thereafter, at least weekly. So that's how you get a recalcitrant union buster to the table. Now, all this is about the Amazon workers themselves doing all this work. And the most amazing thing about Chris Smalls and his friends' effort is that they did this all by themselves without any national labor union support. But in the meantime, the Teamsters leadership at their last election announced they would make organizing Amazon their top priority, starting with the warehouses. And then last month, the AFL-CIO announced that they will help the Teamsters unionize Amazon warehouses. It's the first time these two giant bodies have agreed to collaborate on something in, I don't know, decades. So what role do you see the Teamsters and the state and local labor councils playing in organizing more Amazon warehouses. One thing I want to do, though, is just quickly insert, there was support from a couple of big unions, and it matters to say it, just like the legal order matters. Unite Here, which is one of our better national unions, donated their entire office space in New York City for weeks of phone banking and a very sophisticated phone banking system. The communication workers, again, also in New York City, very progressive communication workers who've had their hell fights of their own, just like I described in the Philadelphia fight. They had a hell fight with Cablevision, where they fought for five years over these objections. So two unions in New York actually made 
a pretty meaningful contribution to help them get to the end game. That was that came later, but I think it's important to note. Um, in addition, Make the Road New York, which is one of the stronger community-based organizations in New York, donated some of the free lawyers uh, to help them understand the legal process. So all hail the workers and their capacity to absorb, learn, understand. But there was some help at the end, and that help actually mattered. Um, having sophisticated phone banking technology is a good thing when you're doing get out the vote on 8,600 workers. So, But backing up to your larger question, there has been rhetoric from the national trade union movement for years about Amazon, and there have been failed efforts, as we know. I think the most exciting of the ones that you raised is actually going to be the Teamsters for several reasons. Again, one, they've got brand new leadership. Sean O'Brien was sworn in a month ago, basically. He ran on a campaign to make Amazon central, not the center, but central to his campaign platform. And he did it in a way that was exactly correct. And it went like this. First of all, brothers and sisters, would, would O'Brien say, we have to restore the brilliance of our original UPS contract that they won back in 1997, that for people old enough to remember it, the 1997 strike by the Teamsters, the most brilliant strike of my lifetime at that point, up until that point, happened. And it was the demand by the Teamsters to convert part-timers to full-time. So that was a structural challenge, just like Amazon's going to be, turning crap jobs into real jobs with real benefits and getting out of the part-time work business. That's very significant because, again, it was we call a structural fight. It wasn't just increase the wages. It was forcing UPS, who was in a race to the bottom, to make crap jobs good jobs. They won a brilliant contract after a hell strike, right, to get to it nationwide. Now, that contract under the leadership that came in for the last 20 years has just been weakened and weakened and weakened and weakened and weakened because they did not have fighting leadership and they were not prone to strike. So O'Brien, the, pre the newly elected president of the Teamsters, said their national UPS contract is up next year. They're already gearing up right now. What he understands is they have to restore to full glory the power of what was a brilliant contract. Why? Because it's when workers see other workers winning tremendous contracts and quality of life that they all want that they begin to be emboldened to fight themselves. So part of what's so exciting about O'Brien's leadership is he deeply understands we got to win a great contract to show the difference between crap jobs at Amazon and what a real union contract can do, which is life transforming. And he also said something very important, which that which is that they plan to use their rank and file members who are under their best contracts to be the people leading the campaigns in the Amazon facilities. And again, when you've got a worker to worker conversation going on where they can say, let me tell you what my contract says, and they can hold up their contract and show it to a not yet union Amazon worker. I got to say, as a longtime hospital organizer, nothing trumps saying, here's the contract these workers have. How's that look to you? And then you get to explain to them it's not going to be as easy as just going. It's going to be hard as hell. But at the end of it, you got the chance to win this contract, right? So I think that's why I'm most encouraged by the new leadership at the Teamsters. They are a logical union. They do have warehouses. They do have drivers. They are delivery people. Same sector, same worker. Closing thoughts on what's going to happen next in Staten Island? We've got an election coming up that starts on Monday at the much smaller facility which is called LDJ5, 
that's the sortation facility, at roughly 1,500, 1,500 workers. I think it's going to be hell hard. We know already from reports on the inside, Amazon isn't taking a chance this time. They're bearing down on the workers very hard. So I would say, got a good chance. No one thought they did last time. So I'm not going to get in the prediction business here. I'm just going to say it's going to be hard as hell to win. Whether or not they do, 8,600 at the main facility is enough to do everything I described earlier, meaning to pull out a win, to force the objections out, to get strike ready, to bring the power structure in. So all focus right now is on the second election. But then with that in the rearview mirror, win, lose or not, they're going to go straight at starting to starting to have the fight that's going to get them to the negotiations table. Parallel to that, they're getting phone calls from more than 50 facilities, I think, and even from international facilities. Uh, and so let the organizing begin with the lessons from the beautiful workers at the Amazon Labor Union. Let the organizing begin. Jane McAlevey is the nation's strikes correspondent. Read her piece about the Amazon Workers Union at thenation.com. Jane, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics, thinking about the left. Mostly on this show, we don't talk a lot about happiness, but now we want to change our tune and consider this. People in Denmark are a lot happier than people in the United States. Is that just because they do not have Donald Trump as their president? For comment, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine and a writing fellow at The Nation Institute and host of Politics and Reality Radio. And he wrote the text, for a wonderful new animated video at thenation.com. Josh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, there are a lot of ways you could compare and contrast life for Danes with life for Americans. How did you decide to do it for this animated video? Well, I wanted to look at the lives of two imaginary human beings, babies basically born in Denmark and the United States, kind of compare and contrast the different systems in which they grow up and fight for what we all fight for, a happy, stable life, uh, a certain amount of economic security. So it was a way of uh, comparing and contrasting European, Scandinavian-style social democracy with kind of the more vicious style of, of capitalism that we have here at home. I'm sure that the Danes are a little bit happier that they don't have Donald Trump. <laughs> well, let me just highlight some of the things that you feature in this wonderful animation at thenation.com. First of all, there's something called a child benefit in Denmark, unknown in America. What is the child benefit? Well, it costs a lot to raise children. And in Denmark, everybody gets a certain stipend. It's the same amount for rich people and poor people. And um, it's one of many different social welfare programs that smooths out the hazards of, of um, living in a capitalist society. How much is the child benefit in Denmark? It's $225 a month. And then um, in, until they reach, I think, age eight, and then it decreases a little bit. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of cash to help with babysitters and stuff like that. One of the things that I, I hope that comes through uh, in this in this little animation is that 
these are not alien systems. These are not totally different concepts. Um, a lot of people would like to say, well, we live in a capitalist country. They live in socialist countries. Well, in both countries, capitalism is the main engine for economic productivity. And in both countries, a certain sector, a certain segment of the uh, country's economic output is devoted towards the social safety net. And they're not so they're not diametrically opposite systems. They are varied approaches to mixed economies. And I think that they reflect a different set of priorities. So, you know, when we look at um, at the Scandinavian countries, well, they pay a little bit more taxes. They definitely do. But they get so much more back for it. You know, I, I think this is one of the things that really stands out. You know, I pay a lot of taxes and I'm happy that my, you know, my roads are well maintained and I um, I will eventually get a social security payment. And, you know, all these things that we take for granted, My if, if my place catches on fire, they'll be here to help put it out. But in the Scandinavian countries, they really get an enormous amount of really obvious benefits for the for the tax dollars. Let me let me uh, ask about a couple more of these. We have Head Start for kids from low income families who meet the eligibility standards, but in in Denmark, everybody gets free preschool starting at 6 months if they want. Very uh, high quality preschool. They can't be charged more than a quarter of their income and people at the lower end of the income ladder, they don't pay a, a penny. And think about how that that helps. We talk a lot about work life balance. Imagine how much easier it is for people to, you know, raise a family and uh, work a job when you know that you could drop off your kid to an extremely high quality preschool system and not even worry about it. In Head Start, we have that covers a tiny fraction of the population in terms of full full time Head Start programs. Of course, they have very good public schools. They have free college and vacation. Danes get paid vacation. How much? Paid vacation do Danes get? Well, so uh, all Danes get at least five weeks of paid vacation. Certain union members get a sixth, and then they throw in this other kind of random week around the holidays. So most Danes get about seven weeks of paid vacation. And one of the things that I think you need to look at in in, in the bigger picture is that when you account for um, the cost of living, the average Dane, the average American, their incomes are eh, pretty similar but we work a lot more hours than they do. And if you look at the the amount of vacation they get, the amount of hours per week they, they work, they, they have a lot less stress than we do. And one of the things that I think is underappreciated is that there is a lot of stress living in a capitalist society. Um, there's risk. There's inherent risk. This is something that I think conservatives really don't appreciate. They have this idea that there's people who are worthy of benefits and people who are unworthy of benefits. But whoever you are, you can walk out tomorrow and, you know, a, a piano can fall on your head or whatever. And, you know, we take on most of those risks or much of those risks ourselves as individuals in this country. And in the Scandinavian countries, that risk is socialized. It's spread out among the, the, the population. So if you walk out and you get hit by a piano, 
and you have kids in school, you're going to be okay. You're going to get unemployment. You're going to have uh, health care that you pay very little out of pocket for. Your, your, your risk is reduced as an individual. It's a lot less stressful living in those countries. Ivanka Trump has been advocating parental leave. I think it's four or six weeks. I see that in Denmark, they have a full year of paid parental leave that the parents can divide uh, between them. And of course, they have a, a health care system of the kind we only dream about here. Uh, we've only got a couple minutes left here. I want to listen to a clip of what you actually did on the animated video. It's not the usual uh, Nation magazine angry pronouncements and, and alarms about how <laughs> rotten everything is in society. Let's listen to Joshua Holland narrating the animated video about why Danes are happier than Americans. So you get the picture. Emma will have lived her life under the crushing burden of democratic socialism, that combination of state-funded education, health care, parental leave, and plenty of other benefits, has made the citizens of Denmark the second happiest people in the world. And Americans, we're number 15. I got to say, it makes me happy just to listen to that. How did you decide to do it in this in this form? Well, you know, as, as you know, because I've been on your show before, I have yes. a, a terrible disease, which is that I get wonky very easily. So <laughs> I wanted to make this something that was really accessible. And th this was really our... Our goal with this is that we didn't want to write a paper about, you know, oh, look at look at how much social benefits they get and how much social costs are privatized in the United States, blah, blah, blah. We wanted it to be something that, you know, you could watch the cute video and, and see the, the animation. The animation, by the way, is, I think, hilarious. I yeah. love the animation. And, um, and come away with a sense of the differences that, that doesn't require, like, a PhD to understand. <laughs> Joshua Holland, watch his wonderful video, Why Danes Are Happier Than Americans, at thenation.com. Josh, thanks especially for this unwonky uh, effort, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. We spoke with Joshua Holland in August 2017. it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. USA.